Hi, this is Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds. And I'm Carly Malcolm, lead for North Carolina Fellow for Guilford County from the UNC School of Government. And welcome to the Good Grief Podcast. Have you ever lost a loved one and had to figure out what to do? Have you ever felt alone and overwhelmed? Did it make you wonder why on earth this is all so complicated? In this podcast series, we bring together community partners to talk unapologetically about issues of death and dying. We answer questions about funerals, hospice, estates, and more to give our listeners the knowledge they need to make decisions for themselves and their loved ones. We want everyone in Guilford County to know that they're supported, that we live in a community where we cannot only live and live well, but when we die, we can also die well because we care. So we thank you for joining us for the Good Grief Podcast and for taking this step to be better prepared for end-of-life challenges. Hello, this is Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds, and I'm here with Carly Malcolm, who is the NC Lead Fellow of the North Carolina Institute of uh, Government, who's with us this year. We have, uh, we usually we have special guests, but for me, I'm going to put Barry on it, um, Chase Holloman. Uh, Chase, I told you, I really just appreciated seeing you. And um, Chase is the program director for uh, GC STOP, an acronym for Guilford County Solution to the Opioid Problem. He has a master's degree in social work for the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, Chase had an incredible personal journey and uh, an incredible professional one, too, in terms of the work that he does in uh, the Guilford County community. We're going to talk about that today. We'll talk about his family, his journey in the world of end-of-life care and deal with the world of opioids, uh, opioid use disorder, and his work with GC Stop. Absolutely. All right. And as I say that, I'm going to take a minute and say, I really think you are an incredible person. Um, As you know, I knew your dad very well as a fellow registered deeds. And... um, uh, you know, I see a community of support that's developed around you in the work you're doing. And I think it's such a gift and, uh, I recognize it. And I think there are a lot of people around you that do. And so, um, you know, as we get into some of these at points, maybe just tough discussions around life and death and recovery. Um, I just want you to know that I think you're doing an incredible job. And I think that there, again, are a huge number of people around here that uh, support what you're doing. Um, so um, just getting into it is, you know, your your mom and dad um, both suffered through terminal illness, right? Um, how did end-of-life issues come into play as related to, to you dealing with that? I think uh, my entire life, was enveloped in that my mom worked for hospice for 23 years. Um, and she started there as a social worker. Uh, and how she got into it was that she lost her parents at a young age. Uh, one of them to early onset Alzheimer's and the other to lung cancer. Um, she was in her mid twenties and going around talking about her experience and a nurse from hospice heard her story said, come work for us. Um, so I grew up around that and volunteering there. And then, when I was 18 years old, I'd just gone off to college and my mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, um, a familial gene. And that was my first experience dealing with uh, death and dying personally. So when you were dealing with, with your mom and dad situations, um, did you use the bureaucracy 
much at all in terms of having to deal with like advanced care directives and things like that and the clerk's office and, you know, how did all that come to play? Uh, I guess, you know, you, from what I remember is that, um, that you and your dad, uh, you know, were, uh, caregiving for your mother and, and also, you know, your, your dad had cancer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so he was dealing with, with that terminal illness and, and your mom was dealing with the Alzheimer's and how did that play in, in terms of just working through the things that come up that you may not expect? Cause you were dealing with that, you know, you were exposed to that as a teenager, right? A lot. Absolutely. And despite my mom working for a hospice and despite having that language used around me my entire life, I was 18 years old when it happens. Um, and this is where this intersection is interesting to talk about opioid use and death and dying. Um, I'd grown up with undiagnosed and unrecognized, untreated mental illness. Um, and using illicit drugs saved my life because uh, they helped me cope with that. So by 18, I was well on my way to that and not really in a place to be thinking about advanced directives or living wills or all of these things. And, you know, the, the diagnosis of my mom really skyrocketed my use because um, I did not know how to deal with that and only amplified uh, the symptoms I was already feeling. And, um, you know, a, a year and a half later, my dad was diagnosed with renal cancer. And then I really had no, what, no idea what to do. So you had all these, you're an 18 year old with these undiagnosed conditions. You're dealing with uh, family members that get, are diagnosed with terminal illnesses. You have those things that you can use. Um, and the way you describe it there is that it, it saved your life. And then you had to deal with the addictive nature of it. Um, talk us through that a little, you know, a little more. Absolutely. So I think it, at first they saved my life just by me being able to cope and live the everyday reality that a lot of us do. Um, you know, and at some point my use became problematic and chaotic. Um, speaking on death and dying, you know, I ended up overdosing uh, more than once a few times um, on opioids, you know, and came to the brink of that. Got arrested a few times, uh, put my parents through what I hope I never have to experience, um, all while they were dealing with that and the subsequent shame and cycle of use that happened as a result of that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of stigma that comes with your field of work. Um, can you talk about how that comes into play? Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, I think stigma kills more people than drugs do. Uh, I know that. of people that will seek help for their opioid use disorder this year will receive it. Only 10%. There's not a lot of options. People don't want to tell you that they use drugs because they're used to being scolded or told that they're bad um, or worse, put in a cage for their drug use. And it's worth mentioning that, you know, our friends and loved ones who are black and brown are put into cages for their substance use far more often than their white counterparts. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, as, as someone is using drugs, the only people you can trust, you feel like maybe are other people using, right? At times, you know, and so you've got systems in place that make it, and culture that make it really hard to talk about this and, uh, and our inability to not only talk about it in a way that we can understand it and develop strategies and approaches that are effective, um, create 
um, create cycles, not just individual cycles, but it's what you're alluding to is when that is put into policies, practices, and procedures within systems in that culture, we're really in a bad place. We really are. Um, and I think that what you bring to the table is not only your personal experience, but the heart to understand those things. And within that system, um, work to push it to be better. Um, Would you talk a little bit about how you got started in this line of work? Like how you got set on the path of helping other people recover? Absolutely. Um, I moved to Greensboro uh, in 2013. I went to treatment here in Greensboro. Um, and I was so fortunate and privileged to be offered a chance to go to treatment um, instead of jail because of my privilege and uh, had health insurance and my parents had access to resources to help pay for it. Um, and I did well here. I had a community of people willing to support me and help me. And uh, then I was kind of like, what now? And at first I'd considered going to a trade school doing electrician work. And um, I didn't think college was an option for me because of my criminal history and because I'd been invited to leave my former university. But I applied anyway due to the encouragement of some of my friends. And after a long, arduous process of arguing my character, <laughs> um, they let me in. Hey, all right, you got there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and uh, and so, and one of the things that I think about a lot is 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 back when you were in the midst of, of a lot of those transitions, I had the opportunity to meet you in my office. And I remember our conversation. I can't remember all the details, but when I was done, I was, I had this feeling that you were, you were going to do something unique and special. I had no idea what it was, but, um, I think I do know a little bit of that now because you you know the work that you're doing right now with gc stop is uh incredibly uh unique and can you talk us, to us about what gc stop is and what it does and what your role is yeah absolutely um so my role is i'm the, the program director there um i've got they let me have some credentials so i'm a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical addiction specialist um and at GC Stop, we spend a lot of time addressing the systems that you had mentioned earlier, Jeff, um, at critical touch points. Uh, I remember a time when I'd overdosed and was revived by EMS, um, and I took off running because I was afraid. And that was a medical touch point that someone could have offered me help and care, but I saw someone in uniform and ran off. So what we do is um, we worked with Jim Albright, the director of the emergency services here in Guilford County. Um, who you introduced me to, Jeff, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, and he helped yeah. down this program. I found that email. Uh, it was like 2016, and and I remember when you contacted me. It was like in November, and we had a brief conversation. And um, Jim, as I was mentioning before, uh, thinks the world of you. I mean, he, he he really does, and is so appreciative of the role that you're playing right now in the community related to this. Um. And so you, uh, I think you started out, well, go, I mean, what I remember about the context of that time, and you can help me, you were doing a lot of community meetings, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, what were, you were just trying to raise the issue, something that was really important. And you were working at the time with an organization locally, right? 
Absolutely. Um, while getting my master's at Chapel Hill, I was running a program in High Point that distributed naloxone, which is the drug that reverses an opioid overdose to community lay people or people who use drugs who are often the real first responders to an overdose. Um, and I really wanted to raise awareness and I kept seeing the barriers and the systems you talked about. And uh, I reached out to my dad and said, I'd, I'm having this training and I, you know, I want some people from Guilford County that, you know, have power and resources to be there because <laughs> they might be able to help us. And he said, well, I'm not one you can call Jeff. <laughs> I don't have, I don't have actual, well, actually Brody understands today. I don't have a lot of money in my wallet, but I have friends and, you know, and, and in that situation, I just remember that when I talked to you, I was like, I got to talk to Jim and, and, and you all, he had known of you and y'all made that connection. And then from just, you know, a lot of times we think about all these wonderful things that we do in life and, you know, all these accomplishments, but sometimes it's just hearing from a friend and passing it on. And that for me has been a huge gift because it's kind of like in some small way, I have a connection to you and your dad and the gym. And, and as that started working, we're dealing with a reality in Guilford County where when you're looking at, um, you know, we were losing people, um, a lot of people. And I think Jim says like one in five, you know, when, when it was going on, 20% we were losing people based on not being able to, to reverse it and to be able to have a strategy to deal with it. And what you've been doing has been incredibly helpful because you help in a way, make relational connections, you know, you're pushing the discussion around treatment options and you're looking at how organizations and institutions can be in the middle of this and actually work. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting because, and I talked to Jim a little bit about the funding for GC stop there, uh, and it definitely is bipartisan. Um, and I, and we talked about this, uh, former Senator Trudy Wade found some money in the budget in the state budget that got connected locally and, um, helped you all get going. And now you're located in the school of social work, right? We are. Yeah. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that in, in terms of how in, in dealing with GC stop, what some of the successes have been, we'll just start there. It sounds like you've, you know, you came up, you got an idea. And then it's developed into a, an organization and an approach. And, um, you know, how has that all developed from, cause I guess it was from 2017 to now, right? Absolutely. It's been, it's been a wild ride to say the least. Uh, while we started with just referrals from emergency services of people who had overdosed and visiting them, um, you know, we, we realized that that was helpful. And a lot of those folks were able to navigate to treatment. Um, we also realized that there is a need for more syringe services in Guilford County. And um, we have the Urban Survivors Union here in Greensboro. It's been doing syringe exchange a long time. It, t talk to me about that, because there are people who say, no, you shouldn't do that. No, why are you giving junky syringes, right? Why are you doing all this? And it's part of the stigma, too. Why is it so important to have an approach around syringe exchange? Absolutely. No, I get that all the time. And I, I love talking with folks about this. And I, I think I'll just share a story about that. And that's um, when we first started doing the syringe services program, it was delivery. And I got a text to the GC stop line and it said, um, you know, is this the exchange? And I said, yeah, like, can I help you with something? 
And they said, yeah, I'm, I'm over here at this motel. If you could come meet me. And at the time we were just getting going. So I just hopped in the truck and went over there and I get there and, and call. And of course, as soon as I get there, no one picks up the phone. I'm like, okay, great. Mm. So I, I see someone that I know from EMS, um, referral actually. And I go over and say hello to him. Um, I get him some supplies and actually make a referral for him to go to treatment. I think, well, maybe it's a good idea for me to just stick around. So I go and park and uh, there's a young, young woman outside and her and I trade glances and she walks over to the window and, you know, I roll it down. And I say, are, are you the person that, that I'm looking for? And she said, no, but I can be. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm not here for that. I'm not here for that. Oh, yeah. I said, I'm actually here to do syringe exchange. And she was like, well, honey, I don't do that. And I said, oh, well, I've got some condoms. Would you like some of those? And um, she said, yeah, sure. And we go to the back of the truck and I get her this big bag of condoms and we're just talking and building rapport and being kind to her, you know, something that I don't imagine she's experienced in a while. And uh, after a little bit, she says, hold on a second. She goes and knocks on doors. And within about 10 minutes, I've got five people out there all getting supplies. About three of them went to treatment in the coming weeks. And that's why we do syringe services. It's an opportunity to to be kind and listen to people. Yeah. And that's really just one of the ways that stigma can kind of get in the way of the best treatment that you can offer. Can you talk about other places where that shows up? Absolutely. I think it, it shows up everywhere. I talked about medical touch points like with EMS. I think it's important to know that when someone goes to the hospital, if they're there to detox from opioids, they'll be turned away because um, it's not life-threatening. Well, it's also important to know the stigma that's ingrained into the treatment system, the very healthcare professionals we trust with our loved ones. Um, there's only two evidence-based treatments for opioid use disorder that are shown to decrease the overdose uh, death rate, and those are methadone and buprenorphine. Yet only a third of opioid treatment programs nationwide even offer these medications. Hmm. So we come at this, we, sometimes we come at this issue like, oh no, you shouldn't deal with the needle issue. Or we say, um, everybody's got to go cold turkey, you know, got to stop it and quit it. But it's more complicated than that. And I think that you not only understand on a personal level, the idea of the work you do, the, the why I'm such a proponent of it is what you just said, is that you, you have an opportunity in interactions to build rapport, to build relationship where People are in some spaces dealing with um, a disease. I mean, they're dealing with the need to be able for it to be treated uh, not only effectively in terms of the chemical components of dealing with it, but humanely. And um, and at least in terms of what I've learned about the work that that y'all are involved in, is that you you take that head on and you you know there's no separation at least I think between the street. And, and the program in terms of really trying to be there for people who are struggling through this. Yeah. Well, and certainly on the personal level, you've touched on some successes, but in a sort of broader scheme of things, what sort of successes and challenges have you seen in this program? Well, I think our, our favorite output currently would be that um, from July of last year to July of this year, we heard of a thousand and six times that someone in Guilford County used our naloxone that we distributed to save someone's life. Wow. Um, we're really happy about that. And it's hard to think about the, the significance of that. You know, a thousand and six families 
that didn't have to bury their loved one. And to put it into perspective, you know, if those were all different individuals, that means one out of 500 Guilford County residents would have been revived with our naloxone. Yeah. That's incredible. And you lose, you lose people. Absolutely. We, um, more and more often now, um, with COVID, we're seeing some significant increases in overdose fatality, um, with returns to use of people who are abstinent. A lot of times people coming back from abstinence-based treatment, come back to the community, to the community from whence they came. They have no tolerance and the drug supply is essentially poisoned because it's all fentanyl now. Uh, COVID has not only affected regular above ground supply chains, but it's also affected underground supply chains and it's made the drug supply very, very dangerous. Yeah. And so in terms of COVID, you've got the realities and I, I'm sure you see this a lot. You know, the, the, where, you know, how are the NA meetings going? How are, how are the, the counseling sessions and the treatment opportunities working? You know, how is that system that is already, um, probably with all due respect to some really good people working in it, dealing with overwhelming challenges to, to respond to this COVID makes it that much more worse. Absolutely. Have you seen, I mean, how has COVID impacted your work? For us, um, we're still out in the community. We spend a lot of time in motel parking lots and on the streets. Um, so we just mask up and give out sanitizer and mask and, and try and help folks. However, um, referring folks to different levels of care, you know, most organizations are inside. A lot of places shut down. Everywhere is reduced capacity. Um, the challenges are just that much harder. Um, we know that folks need work to sustain recovery. We know folks need resources to sustain recovery. And all of those things are gone. And I think it's important to mention, too, from a prevention side of things, and it's all interconnected. We talk about recovery capital, which is, you know, resources are the things that enable us to do well. Um, and a lot of those things are gone for folks. In fact, the, the biggest one, which would be connectedness to others, is incredibly damaged and it is ravaging the recovery community and the community in general. Alcohol sales are through the roof. I imagine we'll see a surge in new diagnosis of substance use disorders. Hmm. Can I cut for a second? Did I say, I said disease a minute ago. Was that appropriate? That's fine. A lot of people, Okay. I don't touch it. Uh, it's the medical association would agree with you. Okay. So I'm, yeah, I'm okay. okay. You can say that. Yeah. Fair. I guess, um, do you see any sort of solution for while we're, we're still dealing with COVID? Like, what can we do to support that community? That's a, that's a tough question. Um, I'm a big idea person, an ideal person, so my mind immediately goes to that. Um, so I always try and say that we have a poison drug supply, and it is completely because of an illicit market where we're unable to regulate what is out there, um, that until we have safe supply at the bare minimum accessible buprenorphine and methadone, which are the effective treatments I talked about before, we'll continue to see overdose deaths because people need safe supply and people are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. And, and I used to have good friends with, uh, former judge Lawrence McSwain and, and he would talk about with the drug treatment courts people who are struggling with addictions is that 
the idea of working through the addiction and dealing with failure is that if you're addicted, I mean, you can almost, I mean, he was saying on average 13 or 14 times, is it, is it breaking through that is incredibly complex. And, and a lot of times we come at it from a one way fits all mentality, absent a relationship to the problem. And, and I think that's part of the problem is that, is that we aren't in, we end up, most of us get into it through our family. Is it, we don't really think about it till something happens that affects us personally, that affects our families, you know, and we have a relationship to understanding the complexities that addiction brings into our lives and, and how you not only treat it and, and how the recovery process works. And it's not in any way a straight line, right? No, absolutely not. And I think in um, the context of the illicit drug supply, the way it is, and the fact that we know that 90% of people that are going to go to abstinence-based treatment, which is the main treatment modality in the United States, will return to use. Now, we've been doing this for 100 years, and this has helped a lot of people. I'd, my pathway was abstinence-based recovery when I got here to Greensboro, and it did help me. However, what we know is the vast majority of people are not going to do well with this. So we know that that 90% of people are going to have no tolerance and return to use with a dangerous drug supply and, and likely overdose. Yeah. It seems unfair to paint that as a personal failure when it's so many people that this system isn't helping. Like, so I think you bring up some really good points about how that system can change to better support people. Mm-hmm. And you, you, uh, when you were going through your own addiction and recovery, you know, and in, in immediately or in the 2013 or you attended Fellowship Hall, uh, right? There were some other, there were some different ways at which you were trying to work through the addiction and also find some, the support that you would need. You've talked about naloxone and you can say the buprenorphine. Buprenorphine. Yeah. Okay. As a part of this concept called medical assistance therapy. I guess MAT is what Jim refers to it. Um, that to me shouldn't be controversial, right? It it shouldn't be, and it, and it's interesting. And you know, you saw the TEDx talk that I did, and it was about this because it is a it's a curious subject because you can review the literature, and we have decades and decades of literature that speaks to how effective methadone and buprenorphine are, and how ineffective abstinence based treatment is, and yet. It's still the slim minority of treatment options available to folks. Um, and, and a lot of it really is that stigma. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can look at this, at least the way I see it is, you could not agree with drug use, but we can agree on how to treat addiction in ways that actually are effective. And sometimes you, you've got to be able to have these kinds of strategies that, that utilize drugs like this to help you. Um, and, and again, it, it's, it's the idea of harm reduction to some extent. It's, it's throwing everything at it. It's, you know, you're not only throwing your mind and your soul and treatment philosophy to it. You're coming up with these practical tools that could help people in very difficult spaces, um, where we're already failing, by the way. And I know that you, you kind of talk about the, the systems at play and I mean, there, there've been investigations, there are lawsuits 
with drug companies around opioids right now. I mean, that's something that we all shouldn't be afraid of talking about. And, and I think that, again, for us, it's, it's, these end up in many cases being life or death issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you are uh, a professor, Professor Holloman. When I, I, I keep going back to Jim Albright, he's the MS director, and he goes, yeah, when I met Chase, he was this, this, this dude with long blonde hair who came in, who was always rocking the boat and wanting us to do different <laughs> things. And, uh, and he goes, he goes, now he's over at the, at the college and he's teaching courses. <laughs> so I love it. Um, talk to me about some of the, the teaching that you're doing right now. Absolutely. Um, so I, I got to teach my first class at UNCG social work program last spring. Um, which is awesome because that's where I went for my undergrad. And I told a class that I had taken um, and the professor that I took it with got to help me teach the class. You know, I would go to his, I would go to him before class to, so he could teach me what I was about to teach. And um, this semester I'm teaching social work seminar, which is a class that all seniors in the program take. And what it is, is it's goes with their field placement where they do um, two days a week in the field uh, doing social work. And we talk about what they're learning there and the theory behind it and really connect the praxis. And I love it. So, and you've been able to, you're not only running, you're, you're the, uh, director of the program, was a program director, program director of the program over at UNCG. You're teaching over there and you also get to utilize interns, right? To help support your work. And so they're getting good clinical experience and you're being able to leverage the college in a way that helps the community. And I think that's, uh, that's incredible. And I think that's one thing that makes this program very unique. Um, is there anything you want to talk about? Um, I think I'd just like to expand on that. Just that our interns <laughs> are everything. They've helped build our program. I mean, I've got 10 interns right now. Eight of them are graduate students uh, from various social work programs. Um, and from the beginning, I've told people like this is your program too. You know, there's there's no ceilings. You know, I want you to help develop this. And it's because of the interns that we've had, why we've had so much success. Mm-hmm. How many um how many people do you serve in a year? Do you have those numbers? Of course, I of course let me say that mm-hmm. is that this kind of work is something that you don't necessarily gauge success off of numbers. So I'll go ahead and disarm that. But in terms of how you, how you equate success? Um, since we started, we've been referred close to 2,000 people. Um, so that includes people out of county as well. And we see anywhere from 40 to 70 unique individuals each week. And those are the only stats that I'm confident about. And that's, I mean, really for us, you know, we have, we have an evaluator and we have data that we keep, you know, and what we want to see is fewer deaths. That's the main thing. But what I see as success is students that learn how to engage with folks who use drugs and will go on to be great social workers because who knows the impact of that. And the little times that I'm just with someone and maybe it's the first time. And like I had mentioned earlier, you can just tell it's the first time that anyone has been kind to them or listened to what they had to say in a very long time. That is incredibly important and it makes a huge difference. And, 
Um, Chase, I just really appreciate the opportunity to have you come in and be a part of uh, the Good Grief podcast and just talking about your family, talking about your journey um, and in terms of just life journey, um, recovery journey, uh, the work that you're doing in uh, Guilford County with uh, GC Stop. And so as as we kind of close out, I want to uh, encourage people if they want to get more information about GC Stop to go to uh, gcstop.uncg.edu. And uh, Chase mentioned that he is fresh off of a TED Talk. And if you want to go onto YouTube and uh, get some knowledge dropped on you, uh, go uh, put in the search engine Chase Holloman, uh, Chase, and then H-O-L-L-E-M-A-N, TEDx Greensboro, and listen to his topic about why aren't we using the most effective addiction treatments? An incredibly important question and one that I think that um, not only Chase, but we as a community ought to be gathered around and learn uh, from his experience and come up with community strategies to support these efforts. Uh, with that said, Chase, thank you for being a part of the Good Beef podcast. If anyone who wants to be referred to uh, GC stop. Uh, which would mean healthcare for anyone who uses drugs or access to healthcare. Uh, they can call or text 336 505 8122. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Grief Podcast. We want your feedback. You can visit our website at www.guilforddeeds.com. You can also email us at endoflife at guilfordcountync.gov or find us on Twitter with the handle at guilford underscore ROD. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and until next time, take care.